Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to hear the heart-stopping, hand-stropping, house-rocking, earthquaking, booty-shaking, biagritating, love-making, did I mention biagritating, legendary, love-that-album, hardest-rocking, podcast-rocking, podcast-wise. Nobody worries about kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? You're listening to Love That Album, episode 58. Morris speaking here. Thanks so much for joining us again. And I have with me on the line two gentlemen, one who you would know from uh, shooting the shit, Mr. John Stewart. Good evening, John. Good evening, Morris. It's a pleasure to have you on board again. Pleasure to be here. And another man who has not been on the show in an awfully long time because of all sorts of horrible technical difficulties, but we think we've got them all sorted out. And I give to you the man who gave you that fine intro to the show, Dr. Jeff Smith. Welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks, Morris. Got you, Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. I'll be editing that out. (laughs) That was his five-second pause. Yeah, that was his... Yeah, yeah, so now that comes later. Um, And, of course, when the three of us get together... It can only mean one thing. The boss is in town. Oh, you! Don't go mentioning Voldemort. You know you know that that's bad luck for you. Um, and so you now have, unlike before, you have a reliable internet service. So hopefully we should be able to um, you know, keep you up for you know, the duration of the show, so to speak. That'll be a wonderful thing. That'll be well, yes. Very good. So... Yes, you are listening to the third Bruce cast, or Boss cast, however you want to call it, that uh, LTA is associated with. If um, you've only sort of cottoned onto the show very recently, go back to episodes 1 and episode 17 on episode 1. Jeff Jenkins, Melbourne music journalist, uh, joined me to have an arm wrestle over which was the better album between The Wild, The Innocent, The E Street Shuffle and darkness on the edge of town i'm not going to spoil it for you you go back and you listen to that to find out why i won and episode 17 where the three of us discussed uh the album wrecking ball but we figured that well bruce has a new album out high hopes and he's currently in australia doing a tour of australia and new zealand and you two gentlemen have been to see him i have not this is the first australian tour of the boss that i have missed Um, i might bring that up later on why the reasons were other than fiscal uh and yeah we'll just have a little bit of uh general uh, talk about bruce's tour of australia and your thoughts of it and uh then after that we'll be uh talking about the 2014 album from uh, bruce springsteen and the e street band high hopes 
And there's uh, a lot of thoughts about that album uh, that's been floating around the internet and be interesting. I'm really looking forward to seeing what you two gentlemen um, have to say about the album. Um, and what else have we got on the show? We're going to be having... Uh, oh, uh, yes, Eric Reanimator. How should... Eric Reanimator with his album I Love segment and uh, always a pleasure having Eric doing his segment on the show and this time around he's covering uh, an album that by an artist that uh, is a big favourite of yours John I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, he chose it because he knew that you were on um, oh, it's very nice of um, Eric and yeah we share our love of um, that artist yes and it's Alejandro Escovedo and his album of uh, I think it's uh, what three four years ago was it Real Animal yeah, probably a, maybe yeah, maybe about five years ago, and I think it was um, uh, Eric will uh, fill us in very eloquently as he always does. But it was, I think, uh, Alendro coming back, uh, wrestling back his rock roots, and I think going back to uh, some of his earlier approach to music. And it was an album that I think was a great run of uh, uh, last last three or four albums have been uh, very good. Excellent. Oh, well, look forward to uh, playing that for you all. And, uh, I, and we also even have a little bit of feedback from the aforementioned Jeff Jenkins, who has written in to tell us about his thoughts about the album High Hopes. And I'll read that out a little bit later on in the show when we're talking about the album proper. So, but uh, for the moment, what we might do is have a quick break, play a couple of uh, podcast promos from the fine people who I like to listen to and are worthy of your support. And then we'll come back to uh, discuss about the current tour of Australia by Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. You're listening to Love That Album with Morris, John and Jeff. We'll be back in a couple of moments. Hi, I'm John Waters. Hi, this is Dolph Lundgren. Hi, I'm Lance Henriksen. Hi, this is Keith Gordon. Robert Kuhn. Miguel Ferrer. Nancy Allen. Robert Davi. Richard Elfman. Ileana Douglas. Patrick Warburton. Dwingshauser. Cliff DeYoung. Steve Railsback. Mr. D. William Cass. If you haven't been listening to the Projection Booth podcast, you're missing out. Each week, the Projection Booth brings you in-depth discussions of some of the most interesting movies ever made. I'm Mike White. No, the other one. I'm the guy who wrote the film fanzine Cashiers to Cinemart since 1994. Since early 2011, I've been co-hosting the Projection Booth podcast. Try us, won't you? I never try anything. I just do it. Visit the Projection Booth at projection-booth.com. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, reinventions, and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think the Cinturis is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal, you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour.
Morris here, Jeff there, and John further up the road in Sydney. So, um, well, we're keeping it live, we're keeping it local. It's all good. Glad you could join us for uh, episode 58. And as I mentioned before, we're going to be talking about Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band a little bit later on in the program. We'll be discussing his latest album, High Hopes. But uh, for a little while, what we're going to do is talk about Bruce's current tour of Australia. He's uh, not quite done as we uh, speak. Where, where, where's he playing tonight, James? Hunter Valley, uh, I would say. Now, this would be sort of like his equivalent of doing uh, Hanging Rock last year. Exactly. I think it, it could be quite historic. It's potentially, Jeff might be able to uh, add, correct me, but it may be his first, literally his first winery show. It's a bit of a phenomenon down here in Australia where a lot of artists uh, will play wineries. So, fittingly, um, Bruce started tonight with Spill the Wine, the Eric Burden and the Animals cover. Evidently, and with a, a in the uh, set list vision at Greasy Lake, it said uh, Spill the Wine in brackets with story. So, there might have been a um, hoary story introducing uh, Spill the Wine. We're going to have to be uh, looking at that on, um, on YouTube tomorrow morning, I think. Mm. So, um, alright, so anyway, you two gentlemen, unlike myself, have been round to see uh, the boss perform this time, and, and Jeff, you more so than, than most people, I think. So, um, really, I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on, on uh, the set list he's been pointing out, his repartee with the audience, and how, does, how do these Australian shows compare with the ones that you've been seeing overseas over the last couple of years? Well, so not, not much to go on there, Mara. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it's, uh, it's again, it's been quite, it was quite a surprise when the, the tour was announced, coming so hot on the heels of his, his visit down here in, in 2013. Um, it was exciting to see him, first of all, before he came out here, playing four dates in South Africa, um, uh, which I believe were, were, again, pretty triumphant shows. Um, I've not I've not really kept up much with the set list there, but certainly since he's come to Australia, he's been uh, mixing things up and throwing in new songs and premieres and curveballs and cover versions and you know as well we'll get to I'm sure high hopes later on where there are a few recordings of cover versions on there, but uh, he's been throwing out cover versions uh, live on the stage. I mean I think he, he opened with the the wine songs as you mentioned at the winery. Um, he's been opening with Highway to Hell, which he did one of the nights I saw, saw him in Perth. He also did it in, uh, in Melbourne, and he played, uh, he played an In Excess song as well. Um, and he played Friday on My Mind as well up in Sydney. So, um, yeah, he's really been, really been mixing it up. And the one thing that, that's, that's sort of I've, I've really taken from it, um, especially with the uh, coming back on stage at the end and doing one or two uh, acoustic numbers, um, that he just looks to be having such a phenomenally good time and just being really bloody happy doing what he's doing, you know, and, you know, more power to him. Um, he's signed off all the concerts with the uh, we'll be back, we'll see you next time sort of thing. So, uh, you know, we'll wait and see. The man's nearly 65. How, how long can he go? Well, he's one fit man, that's certainly for sure. I mean, he did say last year at the at the concerts, he said, I promise you it will not be so long till my next tour. And, well, he he kept that promise, that's for sure. It had been a long time between drinks. I'm trying to think so. Like, between last year and the previous time, it was, I, I think I remember he played Melbourne 
uh, on the eve of um, America's invasion into Iraq, and he opened up with uh, uh, that down and dirty Delta version of Born in the USA, followed by Edwin Starr's War. Mm. I think Jess, and you're right, Morris, we've gone from um, a drought, you know, um, Springsteen shows were literally a decade apart, or decades apart, and, um, you know, like I, I've been a lifelong Springsteen fan, but I was basically defined by seeing him once in 85, yep. once in 97, and that was actually overseas in Dublin, and once in 2003, and now I've seen him um, four times in the last three years, which is just... You know, tremendous, embarrassed by our riches. So you didn't get it, you didn't get to see him do the Tom Joad tour that he did here. No, I was actually living in Ireland at the time and got to see him in the Point Depot in Dublin. Okay. So it was it was relatively early in the Joad tour. It was uh, March of '96, but yep. uh, that, it was just an incredible. That was an incredible show. Yeah, you know, the intensity. Um, but yeah, Jeff. Back to the Australian shows. I think the other uh, notable is. Um, Yes, how quickly he's come back here. So I think, you know, Bruce being probably, in my opinion, maybe the, the last major artist standing that actually has so much, that mixes it so much in his set because even, I guess, his competition might have been your Dylans and Neil Youngs, but even in the last couple of years, they're almost literally playing static set lists from night to night. So I think, you know, I, I think in this era, in, in, in eclectic set lists, Bruce is only up the ante in recent years, I think, Jeff, there was 20 songs, a mate of mine that went to the two Melbourne shows, there was 20 songs difference between night two in Melbourne and night one. And But of course, bear, bearing in mind, though, that the cheat of that is probably 10 of those songs, are, you know, or at least a good chunk of those were uh, from the albums because he did album shows. Yes. Well, that, it can certainly help the numbers. Yep. But I guess I think, um, and the other notable is um, it's, there seems to be uh, not just a little, a significant nod to Australia and Australian bands and Australian music. Mm. I guess first with, you know, Just Like Firewood on the High Hopes album itself. Yep. But uh, as Jeff mentioned earlier, you know, Highway to Hell, um, In Excesses Don't Change, and the one that really knocked my socks off was opening Sydney with Friday on My Mind. Yes. You have a really, it was really incredible, Morris. Uh, you have this moment where, you know, you're hearing the music and you're going, is this, you know, he's not playing Friday on My Mind. And um, it was a, you know, it was a rough, uh, really impassioned vocal, but just a really energetic version. And I think that's what I, what I was fearing was that I was almost, uh, it was almost, you know, there's probably never such a thing as too much, too much Bruce is never a bad thing. But I felt that, but so close between drinks, you know, eleven months, that uh, what I what I got out of the, you know, the one show I saw, and Jeff will be able to comment on the, uh, on the number of shows he saw, is it was had a very very different feel to the Wrecking Ball shows last year. You know, like I think Sydney must have had, I haven't done the actual count, but it must have been about six or seven covers, uh, but, but great covers, unusual covers. You know, like who would have thought Springsteen would cover an In Excess song, uh, you know, a song out of the 80s. I think, you know, we could probably understand that Bruce would cover a song out of the 50s or 60s, may even go into the 70s, but uh, it may, you know, a, an 80s song that was quite unusual by a, 
a band that's not necessarily musically you know, similar to his aesthetic. Actually, just to add one more thing there to the whole Australian covers uh, subject, I was having coffee with a mate today and he said that he'd heard uh, Bruce being uh, interviewed at a, I, I don't know if it was a press conference or something like that, and someone called out, you know, in light of the fact that he'd been doing all these cover versions at his shows, someone called out, hey, Bruce, can you do Wide Open Road by the Triffids? Mm. And he said, don't know that one. Someone make a note of it. So it'll be interesting to see if uh, that shows up um, within the next couple of shows because I think he's only got, uh, after tonight, one or two more shows in Australia. Or, in fact, he might even do it tonight. Who knows? Yeah, I think there's only Brisbane left, isn't there, Jeff? Yeah, there's only Brisbane left on Wednesday night, um, which is, and then he moves on and, and does a couple of dates um, across the Dutch in, uh, in Auckland. Um, mm. So it'll be, uh, yeah. it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see if he goes to uh, goes to New Zealand and opens up with I Got You by Split Ends. <laughs> and I'll tell, tell you what, I don't think you're a million miles away in that call. I, th- I think he'd do a, a really good version of that and also Wide Open Road, the song that I mentioned before. I think they're, uh, I think they're songs that would be right up his alley. So, yeah, I guess the, it's, a, it's an interesting tour, Morris. It's, um, we had, a, I guess, through unfortunate, uh, tragic uh, family circumstances... The significance of uh, last Wednesday night's gig in Sydney was, to my reckoning, probably the first time since about 1972 that Bruce and the E Street Band would walk on stage without having a Clemens uh, riding shotgun. So, and um, brother Ed Mannion uh, stepped up to the plate, uh, I think on very short notice, because I think uh, Jake's father passed away. About four, uh, maybe on the Monday before the show, he jetted back to the states. Uh, I think he, I believe he was back uh, in Sydney um, on Friday or, or yesterday. Um, so he, he's he's since rejoined the band at the Hope Estate. But it was a Sydney was an interesting show in that um, there was there was a lot on the line. Yeah, Jake was missing. Ed Mannion had to learn, and as I was talking to some friends today, they're not just small parts, they're iconic parts of, you know, huge moments in songs, and even for a musician uh, of his 40-plus uh, years standing, I think it was uh, a, daunting, a daunting prospect. Right. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a good enough musician to... I've heard, I read some uh, reviews online where he might have made the odd mistake here, and... Um, he was a, I think he was a bit um, out of his depth as far as um, Jake does a lot of the moving around on stage with Bruce, particularly down to the ramps off the stage into the crowd. So poor Ed, uh, I think there was a funny moment during Sydney where um, he missed his cue, or he probably, he probably didn't even know it was his turn to run with Bruce down the ramp and Steve sort of had to do an exaggerated this away, pointing Ed to um, catch up with Bruce. So... Those sort of shows and that um, impromptu spontaneity, I think, is, you know, for me, what makes Springsteen and the E Street Band great. You never know what you're going to get. They're not necessarily, you know, they're the tightest, you know, biggest bar band in the world. They'll still make the odd uh, musical gaffe. Uh, Poor Susie, I think her violin, she had a great moment on Wednesday at Sydney. Jeff, I don't know whether you, you, you heard it. And again, I'm not a musician, but uh, you know, he, he introduced Sister Susie and she was going to have this great moment with the violin and it 
sounded like um, you know the uh, year ten uh, school recital. She just <laughs> she just hit a really bum note. Um, and 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 we actually had a um, very rare uh, false start to Born to Run on Wednesday night, where Bruce uh, said stop, stop. And I think, unfortunately, Mighty Max, uh, who you know probably makes a mistake once every ten years, started <laughs> off a little bit too fast. But it's it's a set rarity. They don't do it that much, right? Yes. Well, that's right. <laughs> and and I think Bruce made the comment after the song. He said, "That's the fucking fastest we've ever played that song ever." <laughs> so even even with the restart, I think they were going. It was going uh, uh, a few beats too fast. Oh, yeah, that bomb to run was definitely played at breakneck speed. And mm. I thought it was fantastic. Um, yeah, but I think, John, you said that the, the impromptu spontaneity, I think the, the show's definitely different from the Wrecking Ball tour, mm. purely simply because there's been, there's been more sort of looseness, there's been more uh, yes. messing around, there's yes. been more uh, not taking it all quite so seriously. Yeah. Um, I don't know, but I came out of the, the, the first shows that we saw in Perth um, and I said to, said to Kate as we were walking back along the road, I said, it's just somehow better when Stevie's on stage. Oh, yeah. And I think that it was probably the presence of Stevie that, that did that to, to the set, set of shows from this, this part of the tour. Um, you know, not having it down in, down in Australia last time. Um, you know, and that's, again, not being a musician, I mean, hats off in enough respect as to Stevie's guitar playing, but he doesn't give it big licks. He doesn't do, he doesn't, you know, he's not a showy guitarist by any means. I mean, he's a, he's a very good and accomplished musician from what I can tell, but he just lends Bruce that foil that, exactly, um, yeah. he's always there with a silly face and the, the exaggerated actions and the, you know, the, the forgetting his guitar during one of the, the Melbourne shows and, and Bruce being left at the, the mic rather than saying the usual, come on, Steve, it's, oh, Steve, where are you, Steve? You know, <laughs> it's just, just, just kind of funny. You, know, you, get the, you get the feeling that even the Bruce of a few years ago, that that would have been a bit of a faux pas by the guitarist and he would have got a yell in it. Mm. I think so, you're right. I think you've hit the nail on the head. The I, I definitely sensed a... Um, yeah, the, the Wrecking Ball shows that we saw, I think, um, had, even from, you know, what our ears could tell from recordings, and I, and I know, you know, we're not trying to be biased to our, you know, you know our beloved local shows because we're so, you know, we, we uh, cherish them so much because it was such a long time between tours, but I think there was an incredible intensity to the Wrecking Ball shows down here in Australia because he... Not that he had some bad experiences here, but he had some, I guess, less than great experiences. Uh, he had a little bit of difficulty selling out a large outdoor stadium in Brisbane um, in 2003 during the Rising Tour. They had to change venues at short notice and, and there were some commercial battles and he had the famous um, Sydney blackout show where right. the and he power gave, cut four times. And he gave them Rosalita as a reward for their patience. That's right. And, and I was at that show and he, you know, he went to midnight and it was the typical, and, and, and at the Sydney cricket ground where he played then, it was the typical, um, it's a residential area and there's a curfew at 11 and he said, you know, fuck the curfew, you know, they can find me. And he played till about quarter past midnight. And I think those shows he had something to prove down here, whereas I guess in Europe and and the East Coast of America particularly, he doesn't really have anything to prove. He's, he's preaching to the choir. So I think 
the intensity was incredible. And then what I found, with, uh, as Jeff said, with this show, there was a looseness that I just loved on Wednesday night. It wasn't pitch perfect, but it was, you know, you always get the effort with Springsteen. There's an incredible, he's born of a work ethic. He's, I guess he's a product of his form, you know, I know he was born in 49, but I think he's a product of 50s America work ethic. And it's not... It's not a smooth Eric Clapton guitar style playing. He's ringing the neck of the fret, and you know every note's an effort. And um, and and that's that. And what Jeff said was interesting. I think Steve, yes, puts a lightness to the show. And yes, and Steve, you know, he's a. I described him to someone today. He's, they said, yeah, "What sort of guitarist is he?" I said, "Look, I think he's." The E Street's band of Keith Richards, he's dirty. He's a down and dirty guitar player. He's a dirty rhythm guitarist. He's not going to do any great leaves, uh, leads. Uh, he's a rough-as-guts vocalist. But uh, I guess, uh, so, when you say rough-as-guts vocalist, you're talking about, uh, about Steve, Steve. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, but, I mean like, you know, we know that for many years he's been hosting his uh, radio show in America about, mm. uh, what's it called, Little Stevie's Underground, that he concentrates on a lot of garage mm. music mm. and garage bands. And that sort of stuff is his passion. So That's you know, right. That, that whole ethic of uh, what, you know, I, I guess, retrospectively became called garage music is all mm. about, about the joys of uh, rough rock and roll and it, it not being perfect. And That's right. really maybe the E Street Band is on a big scale, maybe one of the last great bands that are still sort of doing it really big but not really slick and and perfect they they do sound and that's probably something i was going to bring up later but it might be worth a discussion you know briefly now that i guess maybe some of my problem with uh, the albums of say you know the mid 90s onwards even including these ones that we have now uh, uh, over the last few years, even the ones that I've liked, is that the production values often made it sound like it was for a, 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 a more slick band, and it's really the, the saying they were better live is pretty true for uh, for the E Street band because you know free of having um, someone like Brendan O'Brien behind their mixing desk, they can uh, they they can put something out that makes them sound well like as you said the greatest bar band in the world. Mm. Look, that's an it's an interesting that's an interesting comment because you know the funny thing I find with Springsteen, and it's not I hope it's not sacrilege to say it, but I actually don't think really any of his albums are really mixed very well. If you go back to Born to Run, you've got that sure you've got that spectreish wall of sound, but you know if you listen to his albums and even Brendan O'Byrne, um they're just the 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 mix I feel, and again I'm I'm. It's only my gut instinct. I have no, you know, uh, credentials in this area, but um, but it's kind of it's it, for me anyway. It's not. It's sort of it's not what I wore, why I listen to Springsteen or why I like him. Is I'm, I'm don't think it's the vibe. It's the vibrancy or lack of on the sound of the albums because yeah, I don't know whether he's he's ever really achieved. His live sound, he may be a mini version of The Who. You know, they're always noted for how great they are live, but mm. maybe only once or twice they caught lightning, you know, with definitely Who's Next. And, yep. you know, it's maybe you just can't capture that uh, sound in the studio. Look, I, I think that they really captured the sound perfectly 
uh, on the river. That mm. one sounds like, uh, or it sounds like they were playing live the whole way through. I mean, if there are yes. any overdubs on that, I can't pick them. Yes. Yeah, it'd be interesting. I mean, I, I would agree that sometimes, uh, certainly on some of the older albums, it can be a bit muddy and and, and almost you, you almost lose bits. Um, mm. I don't know if you're aware, but a whole bunch of the older albums have very recently been remastered um, and and not so much released as allowed to escape um, onto onto iTunes for download. Now I've not I've not done any of them. I've not listened to any of them yet, but. Um, a few people who have are saying that, that these mixes are much better, that it's all a bit clearer. Mm, interesting. Yeah, the guitars, the guitars are clearer, there's, there's a bit more separation, and the voice is clearer. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I guess it's all just down to the, the technology. I mean, it's, it's totally unfair to compare something that was recorded in 1972 with something that was recorded in 2014. Yeah. Just, and I think, you know, famously, in the um, Promise uh, documentary, uh, there was that great uh, story where Bruce um, um, he had a, he had a sound in his head, and he was literally uh, was almost a war of attrition on uh, you know which of the E Street band or the entirety of the band was going to break down because Bruce you know didn't have you know I don't think he even had a girlfriend at the time or you know much of a life he was completely committed and the guys were taking bets of you know what will the session be today twenty three hours or twenty seven hours. And as they turned out, in, in hindsight, they said the sound that Bruce was looking for didn't actually exist. It wasn't capable of being produced in uh, circa 1978 studios. And it wasn't really until um, they got Bob Clearmountain in uh, to actually come in. And he kind of saved the day, whereas Bruce had, um, and John Landau had basically ground, or Bruce had ground John Lando and any of the engineers previously working into the dust and they were at a bit of a, um, uh, they'd hit a bit of a roadblock. And, uh, but but I, I think Bruce, from a sound point of view, uh, as great as Bob Clearmountain probably is, he tends to, I think, Bruce, I think, is possibly very loyal and he tends to stick. So, you know, Bob Clearmountain's probably mixed every album since then and, and then Brendan O'Byrne, and now we've got Ron uh, Aiello, uh, who's done Wrecking Ball. And I think, and I know, Morris, you said on um, episode 17 that you, know, you, you could detect some problem or some, I, th I, th I guess, things that um, didn't quite sound right to you on Wrecking Ball, but um, I felt he had to possibly lose Brendan O'Byrne for a while. Well, I mean, look, I'd be fully prepared to admit that it was a very subjective thing. There was nothing wrong with the album in uh, sound-wise, in you know the sense of you know who he was aiming the album to get. And I, I don't remember if it was with you guys that I had the conversation with. I was saying you know it sounds too much like a stadium album, and you said, well, mm. but that's what he wants. He wants to get those people to have their bums on the seats, and if that's what it's going to take to deliver his political message, uh, to get more people to come to the concerts then that's what he's going to do. And, of course, he's always had a big sound, unless, of course, he's doing albums like, you know, Nebraska or The Ghost of Tom Jode or Devils and Dust. But primarily, yeah, he is always trying to go for a big sound. But I just sort of thought maybe they'd stepped over a line for my liking with Wrecking Ball. But um, I'll be interested in hearing your, you guys, you know, what you have to say when in relation to High Hopes and whether... You think that's been rained in a bit, or you know, whether you think the sound is somewhat different. Um, 
before we sort of go into discussing the album proper, just sort of finally, I, I guess, um, Jeff, uh, I mean, you, you guys have already gone and said that you sense that there was a difference in approach between last year's Wrecking Ball shows and this year's High Hopes shows. But, you know, given, Jeff, that you've been to, uh, you know, how many, how many, the, the two of the Perth concerts, two Melbourne concerts and, and uh, the Sydney concerts. So did you tend to notice, was there like a, a, a build-up between the original, between the first Perth show that you saw and the last, uh, and the Sydney show? Or, or was, um, do you think he sort of hit the ground running in, in Perth? How do, you, how do you felt? Was there a change? Um, well, I, I didn't obviously see the, the opening uh, Perth show, um, but by all by all accounts, the second night in Perth was the was the best one from what everybody's been saying. But you know, really, f- from my point of view, he came on stage that first show that I saw, second night in Perth, which he came on already at one hundred and ten percent. Yeah. You know, and you know, not even Bruce has got a lot more to go than that. I mean, there was. There was points um, during, I think, the second, the second Melbourne show, and I'll go. This will probably go against an awful lot of what's been said by a lot of people. Mm. Where early on he looked very flat. Um, I thought he's 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 looking and sounding tired. Um, and then, but then he just seemed to whether he picked that himself and just lifted it another level. Um, and then this this the Sydney show, you know, as John mentioned, from you know Friday on my mind right through to the, the Dream Baby Dream right at the end. Again, Bruce was on 110% from, from the word go. I, I heard that, Jeff. Um, There's some good discussions on the internet on uh, our beloved Greasy Lake that, um, yeah, they felt that um, he the first hour of the Melbourne night too, he was a bit flat, and that may have been uh, what propelled him to do a three-hour and 55-minute show, which yeah, well, in people- itself is probably the longest show he's ever done in Australia. Yeah, I mean, he definitely, he definitely did, though, um, during that show. He had a couple of points where he sat down on the stage and actually spoke to the audience for quite a long time. Mm. Um, so, you know, he maybe, filled, he maybe filled in, if he played songs in that time, he could probably fill, fit it in another four or five songs. So, mm. um, but, but as, as know, I think we discussed during the week, Jeff, you know, half the charm or half the enjoyment of a Bruce Springsteen show is listening to his rapport with the audience because you know it's almost like let's have a fireside chat and he always tells great stories I think I've mentioned to you I've played countless times uh, you know, besides the uh, recordings of Indeterminate Origin that we listen to uh, on the official live to 1975 to 85 album the uh, the lengthy story he gives before launching into the river about the relationship he had with his father and Missing out mm. on the draft, um, I, I find I, I'm riveted every time I've listened to it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, I was, I was in no way disappointed by the by the amount of chatting that he did at that show. I, 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 I'm with you. I think it's absolutely fantastic to hear him put some of his work in context, and, and even when he's just goofing around, he's actually a very funny guy. Yes. Yeah, I think he's, he's hilariously funny. It's sort of I think someone described him as he's kind of like your your uncle. It's a little, you're away with Uncle, and he, and he, but he can get away with his his goofiness. But has he always been like that? I mean, I don't. Think yeah, I think so. I, I think if you look at some of that '70s stuff and his James Brown shtick, I think he's always had that. But I think I think it's gone to another level, Morris, as he's got into his old age. I think there's a 
irreverence to his humour. He's, you know, he's, there's a lot of self-mockery. Uh, you know, he can send himself up a bit. He, and I think Jeff, um, we got we got a magnificent story before Spirit in the Night in Sydney. It was just hilarious. But and I think Jeff, from all accounts, from a friend of mine that went to the second night at Melbourne, got a uh, possibly an even better one before Spirit in the Night. And um, it's great to get the stories back. Uh, the, you know, he had a, he had that fantastic um, uh, and very emotional um, gospel, uh, I guess. Uh, uh, rant for want of a better word during my city of ruins at last year's shows where he paid respect to you know band members and relatives and and in fact all the audience you know anyone that had lost a loved one but um yeah it, it, it wasn't so um i guess serious tone and um yeah spirit in the night if um you get a chance to listen to sydney night one very funny story about uh, he, you know, he said he's been travelled all around the world to fancy ass hotels, and he said I've only seen something in Sydney that I've never seen in my life—a computerised toilet seat. <laughs> and he and he goes into this. I won't spoil it, but I guess I'm going close to. He wakes up. He said, "When you wake up in the middle of the night in a hotel, you can never find the lights." He said, "Because you just can't." And then he goes goes into the bathroom. And he just sees this little blue light. I think it was uh, Ed Mannion or Charlie Giordano then make this uh, sound with their um, with their instrument of this toilet seat opening and then he goes into, in a very high-pitched voice, can you hear the spirit? Uh, it, was just a, just a, it was just a very funny story. Fantastic. And, uh, you know, he had the crowd in the palm of his hand as he always does. But, yeah, look, I think he's your wayward uncle that uh, you just, you know, uh, that you can't be embarrassed by. No, no. Even though he's trying to, uh, you know, pretend that he's 40 years younger than what he actually is. Well, I think it, 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 when, when he sat down for Spirit in the Night, he said, I'm 60 fucking five. <laughs> so I can't believe it. And I think, so I think he, I think, and, and that's part of the, without getting too, um, I guess going too far into uh, philosophical rants i think that's the theme that i i'm getting out of definitely the tour last year and this one i think he knows the clock's ticking and you know the clock's taken a couple of his friends and i think it's about time you know there's there's not it's not infinite now and i think he's making every post a winner and he knows that probably you know the easter well you know we could be sitting here in 10 years time talking about God, he's fit for a seventy-five-year-old. I'm hoping that I'm hoping that we do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned there, John. He actually said during one of the the, the first Melbourne show after he just played, you know, twenty-seven minutes worth of Seven Nights to Rock. Mm. Um, he actually said, "I think I've just been possessed by my thirty-year-old self," which I thought was, you know, a very very funny remark. Um, yeah, and the fact that, that the fact that he was probably the only one in the whole stadium still standing at that point. That's right. And I think the similar, a similar thing about what I, what I thought was a very nice, uh, and I guess this is a little tangent, is, and Morris hit upon it um, during our Wrecking Ball chat, uh, episode 17, but his ability to transform songs that, geez, you know, I, could, I could, couldn't tell you two songs that have let that, and again, hopefully not sacrilege to our listeners, but I couldn't tell you two songs that have left me more cold than 
the two acoustic encores he did on Sydney Night absolutely floored me. An acoustic version, Morris, of Surprise, Surprise from Working on a Dream. Mm. But what was nice about it was in the context, it was a sign from a young man in the audience that was 23 and Bruce did a short intro, one of his, one of, wasn't one of his long rambling ones, and he said, 23. He said, I could go back to, he said, where was I at 23? He goes, oh, yeah, blinded by the light. I was pretty <laughs> fucked up. But, and, he, and he sung this surprise, surprise, and just the sentiment and the way he sung it quite tenderly compared to yeah, the jet engine roar of the previous three hours. And then a, a, another song without, I guess, giving away uh, how I feel by, about one song on I Apes, Dream Baby Dream, sitting down alone at his harmonium, was absolutely spellbinding and possibly the best conclusion to a concert I've seen since, I don't know, you know, Dylan walked off stage in 1986 at, in the Sydney shows to knock it on heaven's door, still being played in the background. It was just, just, it was just absolutely perfect. I think he's still doing it though, John. Mm. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, John, just to pick up on that, I think you're absolutely right. You know, um, surprise, surprise. I mean, I, I, I'll try not to talk out of tongue because I know it's Morris's favourite song or his favourite album. Right. Um, it's one It's one song that... It, the, the sort of refrain singing of surprise, 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 mm. I find almost a bit embarrassing. Yeah. Um, but the way he did that on, uh, on, on Wednesday night there, you could have had a pin drop. Yeah. And if he just stood there and sung surprise, surprise, surprise for about 15 minutes, I think no one would have cared. Mm. Right. And the and the, the the Dream Baby Dream is, is the one uh, song of, of High Hopes that I've continually just skipped past when I've been playing it. Really? Um, I won't be now because I'll be able to picture that, that harmonium and that ending note that just seemed to get louder and bigger oh. and louder and, and wider. I thought... I thought that harmonium was going to explode, you know, and then it's it, it, it just incredible. It's, a huge grin. Yeah, it's, it's hard to describe, Morris. He played the harmonium, stood up. I don't know um, how I've, you do I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of video footage of that, like from from the uh, Devils and Dust tour. So mm. I, I I know what he. Yeah, I know his performance of that. Mm. It's just a. It's just, and I think I guess that's um, that's his strength, and um, we. We only got three songs from High Hopes on um, Sydney and Jeff would have seen quite a few more during his concerts. But sometimes, you know, something that doesn't look that great on paper or in the studio it can come to life uh, live. Yeah, but you still got shackled and drawn every fucking show, didn't you? Uh, good thing too. And, and, uh, and, and very grateful for it. Yeah, humbug, humbug. I think, the thing is, I think the thing is, though, just to finish up really what we were, what we were saying there, but I think it's the, the fact that, you know, regardless of his voice, regardless of his guitar playing, regardless of his songwriting talent, or occasionally lack thereof, um, <laughs> the man is just, he's a born entertainer. Yes. You know, and he's got that, he's just got that sort of rounded entertaining ability that not many have. You know, he can hold the audience in the palm of his hand whether it's with a searing guitar solo, whether it's with a quiet little story, whether it's with, you know, ridiculous jokes and dad dancing, or, you know, he's just, he's just got that. He's got the vaudevillian, he's got everything, you know. He's just, 
entertainer. It's interesting you mentioned that because I, I know that in, in conversations that I'd had with uh, John and with another friend of mine here in Melbourne, uh, basically, yeah, they, I think you'd said, John, that you'd gone and recommended or you'd taken a mate uh, or, or a couple of mates to see Bruce who mm. said, no, nah, I'm not sold on this guy. This is not my cup of tea. And then came out a complete convert because, yeah, because yeah. of that you know, Mr. Entertainment. He's almost like, this is what Morris and I were talking about during the week, Jeff. To me, he's almost like, you know, we could all um, recommend movies or books to someone. Um, Springsteen, is, you get someone, to, if you can get them in the front door of the concert, it's almost a sure bet they're going to be quite blown away. Yeah, I don't think I've ever met anyone who's walked out of a Springsteen show and said, man, rubbish. <laughs> you know, as I say, last year a good friend of mine um, uh, went along and she said, look, I'm only going because you, you, you know, I've heard you talking about him and after the show and I thought, oh, it was Sydney night one and I thought, yeah, that's more of a fan's show. It's more of a show for, you know, maniacs like myself. I wonder how my friend would like it. And she said, oh, my God, is he like that every night? And she could only get for the next night she went out immediately and bought behind-the-stage seats, which was all she could get, and and she's a, a convert for life. So I guess it was. So I said to her, "How's your, how's the Bruce Springsteen conversion kit going?" And, um, <laughs> and she was there at um, yeah. So that's satisfying. You know, it doesn't always work, but um, but uh, yeah. Look, and I think that's that's what um, I actually heard someone. Uh, and I think it was another musician. It was, some, it was a pretty heavy hitter said something like what Jeff just said. He said, look, he's not the best guitarist. He's not the best vocalist, although I actually think he's a pretty good rock vocalist. He's not the best songwriter. You know, he's up there. But, but it's the whole package wrapped in the work ethic, the actual effort. It's the effort that's put in. And uh, I think as someone once wrote, he's his father's son, you know, he's... I guess his father you know, had to work factory jobs and bus driving, and so it's almost like um, I can't see Bruce at any age sitting in a pair of hush puppies on a wooden stool, um, singing into his navel with it strumming an acoustic guitar for the whole show. No. Mm. Not anymore. Yeah, it's funny you probably bring that that thing up. My uh, my friend of uh, many many years um, who's followed my kind of growing obsession with uh, with Springsteen and his music and you know, and other things. Um, he'd never he'd never quite got it. He liked a couple of the songs here and there, um, you know. But he's watched me do this sort of just mania, travelling the world and, and and seeing the shows. And eventually, he rang me up a couple of months ago and he said, "I've got a ticket for the Saturday show in Melbourne. I'm finally going to go and see your man and see what all the fuss is about." And uh, at the end of the show. I'm walking out of the stadium and I got a text and all it said was, mate, that was incredible. Um, so I, I, I texted him later on. I said, so now do you see? And he said, I see, I see, I see. He was blinded by the light. He was blinded mm. by the light. And we had lunch the next day. Um, and he said, you know, there's, many, there's a few bands that he would, he would ever think about going to see two and three times. He said that now they've seen Springsteen. If he's touring again, Malcolm will be first in the queue for tickets. Nice. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, but it has that effect. I think John said it's the energy, it's the whole package. And for me, more than anything, it's the honesty. Yeah. All right, what we'll do at this stage, I think um, we'll go over to uh, Eric Reanimator. 
doing his album I Love segment, talking about Alejandro Escovedo's album Real Animal. And then we'll come back to discuss the album under question that uh, ostensibly Bruce was in Australia to promote High Hopes. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes. You're listening to Love That Album with uh, Jeff, John and Morris. We'll be back shortly. Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. because this time around I know that the crew is talking about Bruce Springsteen and at the time of the release of this record Alejandro was hooked up with Bruce's people and there's definitely a tie between uh, Alejandro's career and Springsteen's career and I will be talking about that just a little bit as we go on. Escovedo comes from a musical family but first made his presence known in the music world as part of the San Francisco punk band The Nuns, who I've spoken about in the past. They were one of the two bands that opened for the Sex Pistols' last show at Winterland in San Francisco in the late 70s, and reportedly blew the Pistols off stage. After leading The Nuns, he went on to play in the great cowpunk band Rank and File with the Kidman Brothers before doing a couple other things, and in the 90s turning towards what we now to his alternative country, No Depression magazine named him the artist of the decade of the 90s. And as he found himself fighting various personal health issues and family issues, he re-emerged as a rock and roll singer who dabbles a lot in punk rock, alternative country, traditional music, and has become something of a troubadour. The reason I picked Real Animals is because it, it's really a concept album looking back at his musical history, talking about his time in the nuns, talking about rank and file, talking about the things that happened to him and the people that he knew. So let's take a listen. It's 1978. 
song followed by Chip and Tony about the uh, band Rank and File. Now, I mentioned earlier that there was a Springsteen tie, and that starts with a rumor I once heard that Springsteen was actually going to cover the song by the band Rank and File, and I'm just going to play you a little bit of it here. If you listen to the song, you can kind of hear that there's definitely something that would fit perfectly with a certain uh, era of Springsteen's material. Additionally, like Springsteen, uh, Alejandro has always been interested in a certain amount of social justice and social issues, and he also brings a certain energy to his music. It's uh, like a new folk music, a, a record of what's gone on during a certain point in time. And definitely with the idea of a record that goes back and covers or reflects on an artist's time as part of several different music scenes, you kind of get a snapshot of popular culture, but also the culture at large and the cultural underground. And it also takes a certain kind of artist to be able to look back at their life and career and put it in a context that flows It's a great album, it's got some softer songs, it's got some faster songs, it definitely plays around with the uh, styles that Alejandro had played in, but it's very cohesive and highly recommended. It's Eric Ramader, and I'll catch you all later.
segment and he'll be back on episode 59 in a few weeks but we're still halfway through episode 58 of love that album morris here jeff over there and john even further over there we're discussing bruce springsteen album high hopes only out now i think about five weeks or something like that officially so uh really fairly new this might actually be the most current album that we've ever done on Love That Album in terms of recording time from release time. Sure. Uh, before we get into talking about our thoughts about the album, uh, Jeff Jenkins, who was on uh, episode one talking about uh, uh, the darkness on the edge of town versus While the Innocent, the East Street Shuffle debate, and I think on episode four where we spoke about the cultures of East versus Circus Animal debate. Uh, has sent me an email pending through with his thoughts about High Hopes and I just thought I'd like to read it out to you all so thanks very much Jeff for sending that through and he goes and writes Hey Mo, here are some high oh excuse me here are some random thoughts about High Hopes the first word that came to my mind was underwhelmed I also felt the album was unnecessary but I've listened to the album a number of times since and I actually really like it I think it sounds great Obviously working with Morello for the Australian tour sparked something in Bruce, and I reckon The Ghost of Tom Joad is a remarkable reinvention. I guess the album's strength is also its weakness. There is no theme slash narrative. Bruce used to be such a brutal editor, leaving songs off albums that other artists would build careers around. On one hand, it's great that he's loosened up. Another example is the wristbands for allowing fans to download shows. On the other hand, I think he would have rejected most of these songs in the old days. You know what I would have loved these songs to have been? I would have loved these songs to have been part of a Tracks 2 collection. One test I apply for artists like Bruce when I hear a new album is how many of these new songs would turn up on a best of? Possibly the new Ghost of Tom Joad and American Skins. The skin, but these songs aren't overly exciting for the fan because we already knew them. When I heard Just Like Firewood, which I love and it certainly sounds a little like John Mellencamp's Small Town, which a few people have commented on, I thought, maybe Bruce could have done a covers album, but that probably would have been even more unnecessary than this album. Anyway, I have no doubt you will be much more articulate than me when you discuss the album. As I said, it's been a grower for me, and I'm really looking forward to seeing songs like American Skin and Just Like Firewood performed live. A happy 2014 to you too, Jeff. Thanks very much, Jeff. And I think we're probably going to be basing most of our uh, show around um, the points that you raise in that, I think. Um, so, I, I, okay, so I think one of Jeff's points there about the album being unnecessary and just being a collection of songs, I think has been the main criticism that I've read in reviews, even in reviews that have generally been favourable of the album. Uh, and, you know, there's been a lot of saying, well, yeah, this is a great collection of songs, or otherwise, as people have thought, but it lacked cohesiveness and I'll get to my thoughts on that in a couple of minutes but um, as I said look before discussing the album in uh, further detail I, I sort of thought it would be good for us to have a little bit of a discussion about what led to this album and because I don't think you can take it in isolation so let's go back to talking about the, you know the way Springsteen has worked prior to you know the reunion of the E Street band I, I 
don't think he was ever a, a, an overtly political songwriter. He was certainly a songwriter who made strong observations of society and people's circumstances as affected by political decisions. So, you know, songs like The River and Born in the USA and Factory, but by and large it seems that he kept away from being a blatantly political songwriter and focused on the tales of ordinary life and hardship and life in New Jersey and driving around in cars and people called Frankie. But boy, does, I think he loves that name. Politics came crashing in on his door when Ronald Reagan listened to only the chorus of Born in the USA rather than the rest of the lyrics. Born down in a dead man's town The first kick that took us I guess so many people did in the 80s, you know, because he was wearing a bandana and they were thumping their fists in the air and singing this song with an American flag blown up behind the E Street band. So I guess, you know, he was, that sort of mistake was liable to be made. I don't know how many people actually sort of do listen to the lyrics that, that deeply, certainly not like we do on Love That Album here. Um, I, I guess maybe in the noughties there's still been a lot of the songs like he used to do with people's circumstances being affected by politics but he has gone a lot more overtly political at least in his speeches in his shows and what was the tour that he did like in the noughties where I think it was he trying to get John Kerry elected what was it what was that that big tour that he did with a whole bunch of other artists what was that one yeah, he, he toured. He toured with uh, John Fogerty, um, REM, and a few other notables. Yep. And it had it had truth in the title. The tour, didn't it? Right. Was it the whole Was it the whole front change tour? That change. That was the one. Yep. That's yep. it. So yeah, he's just trying to encourage more young people to vote. Mm. Okay. That all went horribly wrong when they came out and voted Republican, didn't it? Mm. <laughs> well, but. But at least he, he, you know, they said, right, Bruce, we, you know, well, Ronald Reagan believed in you, so that must be what you want us to do, right? Right? But yeah, so I, I guess you wouldn't necessarily still call him a, a, a political songwriter, not in the sense of, you know, early Dylan or, you know, Midnight Oil or Rage Against the Machine. <coughs> but you, I don't know, I guess albums like Magic and, and The Rising still, you would come away saying to some degree they were more political than albums that had come before because it always been even when he'd sort of gone and planned thematically what an album was going to be about and that was something that Jeff touched on in his email that you know, the albums always had like a theme running to them but there'd be a lot more love songs or, or hard times in love as well as the harsh circumstances of people living by uh, political decisions that they had no part of. Yeah, look, I, I, I agree with you, Morris, but my take is probably a little bit different. I think Bruce, actually, the beginnings of his overt political, even in his song intros, and, or, you know, he's probably started around the River Tour and really um, exasperated during the Born in the USA Tour with, you know, his intro to Edwin Starr's War. So, yeah, my take is... 
maybe earlier than we think, but I think in his personal life, he, with John Kerry, um, he actually came out of the closet, so to speak, and hung his hat on a political party. So I think probably his other ramblings or his other association with it was not so political. It was the disenfranchised Vietnam veteran. You know, we go back to uh, the famous um, the Vietnam Vets concert, uh, the memorial concert he did in the early, uh, during the River Tour. But certainly, I feel in the noughties, the, um, the rising, I guess, uh, as one critic said, and I agree, was probably the most mature statement on September 11 by a major artist, um, even down to the point, I guess maybe with the only, his only competition, you know, being Steve Earle's, um, Steve Earle's statement rather than, I guess, even Neil Young, I think, resorted to uh, jingoism that possibly a lot of the, you know, hat-wearing country artists did after September 11, whereas Bruce, uh, I think he's probably the only man in America that could write a song from a... Um, terrorist bombers perspective like Paradise and not get kicked out of the country. Whereas Steve Earle not necessarily having that, um, uh, I guess that goodwill that is associated with Bruce nearly, um, nearly got, nearly got kicked out of the country for his statement, a similar one. But, um, yeah, sure. You know, magic was the Bush administration and, and wrecking ball can be, uh, against, um, Occupy Wall Street. But I don't know whether uh, that's... I mean, you've got also songs like, you know, Devils and Dust, which was written from the perspective of a soldier in Iraq. True, that's right. I got my finger on the trigger But I don't know who to trust I look into your eyes There's just devils and dust We're a long, long way from home, Bob Home's a long, long way from us Feel a dirty wind blowing Devils in dust and, and really, when you think about it, even though, okay, granted this was a covers album, but the Seeger sessions, you know, mm. so like Mrs. McGrath and, and How Can a Poor Man Stand Such a Time as Live, when yes. he rewrote the lyrics, uh, just to really ram the point home. So... He, whilst, okay, you wouldn't say that he's done an album where every song was, let's get rid of this government or let's take to the streets like you know, some more overtly political mm. songwriters would, like, you know, the aforementioned Midnight also. But, mm. there, but there's, you, you still sort of get a sense that he's trying to push a little bit more than just sort of talking about life in a small town like but a no, song never would have done. Yeah, and I think he's probably done it because he's had to because yep. he's not trying to escape from a small town and, um but I, I still think let's well say with the rising it's probably it's still those those that commentary on the event and the times but it's still very much i think through the um say to liken it to the river it's still it's still the personal touch of um the characters in you're missing or uh, the fuse it's still it's still a personal perspective, but I think yeah, I think you're probably right in that um, maybe the last two or three albums it's even gone away from the personal and it's more of a statement. 
Right. Well, certainly some of the songs on High Hopes, even if he's resorted to other uh, people's voices, other people's words, he he's uh, certainly come back to uh, you know like you know, songs like High Hopes, which we'll discuss mm. soon, soon enough. Combines uh, the personal and the politics, mm. uh, and, and all, yeah. all, in a, all in a nice samba package, I guess. Yeah. Samba. Can I can I just pick up on a couple of things about the the role of the political in please Bruce's work? I mean, I would I would strongly suggest that uh, it depends on how you define the political. Whether you're talking about political with a small or large p. Mm. What end of the political continuum you're talking about? Whether you're talking about the personal political or whether you're talking about hitching your wagon to a cause. Um, I mean, I'll, 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 a couple of Bruce's lyrics that spring to mind from right through the years, and forgive me if I get them ever so slightly wrong, um, hopefully, you'll get the, hopefully you'll get the songs that I'm, that I'm coming from. Something, something goes somewhere along the lines of dethrone the dictaphone, hit it in its funny bone, that's where they expect at least. Mm-hmm. Um, another line, is, uh, something like some hazard from Harvard was skunked on beer playing backyard bombardier. I think that was an overt Vietnam reference. Mm-hmm. Um, then right through to the um, what's the, the there's 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 quotes there's even from the river you know um, lately there ain't been no work on account of the economy um, yep. and then you know you can take that right through to the rising that's been mentioned already including a song written from the point of view of uh, the psychology of a, a terrorist bomber mm. um, my city of ruins anyone yeah well, I mean, I guess that was always political, but he really turned it into something completely different from uh, what it was. It became an, an anthem, if you will, for uh, New York City when it was originally written about New Jersey prior to uh, September 11th. That's right. But, uh, the point I was trying to make was that I think Springsteen, as well as the um, embodying the you know the, the personal struggles, whether it's in, in relationships or in job or in the world of you know inter, interpersonal stuff. He's always been overtly political. He's always made comments on issues, not not maybe not like to the extent of the you know the the, the magic tour and the some of the, the 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 stuff that went around with you know backing John Kerry and, and what have you overtly out there and then singing at Obama's inauguration. I mean that's mm. one end of the political spectrum with a capital P. Um, but I think you know he, he's always been maybe quietly political as the is the phrase yeah. I've been for him. And I think High Hopes kind of brings a bit of that from both directions. Mm. Um, it's it simmered under, the, the sort of quiet part of it simmered under for me in the, the Wrecking Ball album, whereas other areas of the Wrecking Ball album was much more in your face. So I mean, I think even since 1972, he's had a lot to say about politics, just uh, not necessarily trumpet it from the rooftops quite as much. And, I don't, I, guess, I don't know the stardom or the, the, the being the personality, you know, the, the, the just being Bruce Springsteen means that you've got to get called in a bit more, you know? I mean, at least he does it in the way that he does it, where he, he you know, he, there is an element of, uh, I'll put my point of view across, but I still think, you know, everyone should have their own point of view. Um, you know, he's not a complete tosser like your Michael Stipes and others like that, you know, who basically come out and say, if you don't vote the same way as me, then you're an idiot. You know, so, yeah, I, mean, I think he's always been, I think he's always been political, but, you know, I think, that, I think politics in, uh, in rock music is a, is a, another whole long number of podcasts of, of, of great interest. Mm. 
Okay, so to High Hopes, the album itself, and as you know, I've already gone and indicated, there were you know some reviews that were lukewarm about it and a few that praised it highly. For those who don't know yet, um, it's a mixture of covers and songs Bruce wrote for uh, other albums over the last decade that didn't necessarily make the cut either... You know, well, mainly because he didn't think it fit thematically rather than, than being inferior songs. And in you know, one case, uh, you know, as we've already mentioned, The Ghost of Tom Joad, a, a complete reinvention uh, of a song from his back catalogue. Yet, okay, I'll, I'll put my, I'll put my um, uh, feelings right on the line here, I guess, at the start of it all, is that um, this argument about the album not working cohesively doesn't work for me. I'll, I'll probably end up contradicting myself throughout the song, saying, oh yes, this sounds like it belongs on this album, it sounds like it belongs on that album. But by and large, I think that Bruce, uh, he's very—he's someone who very much knows, as we've already gone and spoken about on the show, he's someone who knows what he wants from a record. He's very specific about his sound, and he's not someone to just sort of throw a bunch of songs slap dash onto an album oh yeah this one will fit here that one will fit here this isn't tracks two this is his statement and if he's using other people's words through cover versions or songs that have been older that he was still very proud of and felt needed a home which is pretty much what he says in the liner notes i still think as a sequence it works well and the songs work for me cohesively as a whole that's not saying anything yet about the content but I think that these songs actually really do sound like they belong very well together. And that's not to say that stylistically every song is of an elk. You know, you've got, you've got a couple of songs which have the, you know, the, the synthesizer backing, which has always disturbed me on, on the, some of the Springsteen albums since Born in the USA. But, um, uh, and, and then you have some of the more natural sounding al- uh, songs like uh, Frankie Fell in Love, and then you've got your songs like um, uh, Harry's Place, which sounds different yet again. We'll come to those individually, no doubt, but I still think that ultimately a Bruce album is about people in society as they're affected by their circumstance. Either, you know, they, they either have a level of optimism or they have a level of depression uh, or they, they have, as the album is called, high hopes for or high expectations for what they want to get out of life and I, that's, that's a common element through uh, a lot of Springsteen's albums and he's done it once again here so really it's it's not like we're taking a song that he's gone and written 30, 40 years ago as a young man and um, here he is at, at 65 writing something from a completely different perspective you know, over a, a period of 10 years he's, he's, I don't think he's changed radically in his approach to song lyric or, or song or, or arrangement of a song from over the last 10 years, which these uh, songs tend to cover. So by and large, I don't just see them as a bunch of songs collected. I think he has thought about which songs, and let's face it, he's probably got like another 200 in his uh, notebook, uh, songs that he could easily have worked up with the E Street Band. These 12 songs, by and large, they work and you know the the fact that he's decided now to put 41 shots out in 2014 on a studio album doesn't take away from it doesn't take away from the power just because he released it in 2002 
or, or no, that was before 2001, wasn't it? it was 99, 99. 99. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The original the E Street Band reunion tour. Um, but it it still it still works as a um, as a statement. Uh, you know, circumstance. I think he sort of rededicated it over the last couple of years, didn't he? Mm. So it's. I, I, I still think that this. Uh, that's that's just off the cuff. Before we even get into the music itself, I think that the album works cohesively because I still think he's thought about which specific songs he wanted to put on and make sure that they sort of all work together as a family. But anyway, so. You two gentlemen, now that I've had my rant, <laughs> do you think that this album works cohesively? And that's, that's not asking whether you think every song is a great song, but do you think that as a body of work, it works as a Springsteen album rather than just as a collection of songs? Um, I, I, I don't really kind of disagree, Morris. I, I don't think it is a cohesive collection of songs at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, think, I think the fact that it's not... Um, probably reflects some of the the live work, some of the looseness and the you know the joy that's going on on stage. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think the songs, the fact that they aren't you know sat down and themed together very carefully, I think that is the strength of the album. Um, I think it's a, a lot of songs that that well, I suppose the one theme that does connect them is they're they're songs that Bruce thought was good and he wanted to get out there. <laughs> you know, it's it's to that extent. <sighs> You know, putting my putting my psychologist hat on, we all look for connections and themes and, and order and chaos. You know, we could probably all find a, a you know a theme through pretty much any group of songs at all. But um, I, I really don't know that there's a sort of underlying story. Um, no, no, well, that, no, that's a concept but, record. This is I'm not saying it's, uh, he, he doesn't do concept records, but I think <coughs> that these songs sound like they belong together there's there's nothing there's nothing out of place it's not like he's gone and put um uh any, any songs that sounded like they would have actually belonged on nebraska say or or a song like it belonged on uh, greetings from asbury park new jersey which had a you know completely different feel this sounds like the e street band of the 2000s and the songs are still steeped in people's misfortune um he's he's being something of a storyteller, which is something that he always does, um, and uh, just yeah, to me it it works as a body of work. And apart from you know, two songs which I don't really like, uh, I think every other song sounds like yeah, I can listen to this from start to finish. Where if I was putting on tracks, and I like most of tracks, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't necessarily feel inclined to be listening to even a whole. CD at a time, I'd be thinking, right, okay, I've got that bit of it, okay, now they're moving on to the tracks from that era, okay, I'm not ready for that, I just want to hear this sound, whereas this album, I, I think I'd play from start to finish and thinking it all works as a, a body of work, but I, I might be in a vast minority on this. Um, John, your, what were your first yeah, thoughts? Well, when you heard well look, yeah, um, I hardly know where to begin because this album um, has really uh, hit some... Um, bones with me, but I'm a little bit Jeff, I'm a lot Jeff Jenkins, and I get what you're saying as well, but look, I'll, I'll take you through my journey on the album. Sure. Underwhelmed, as Jeff Jenkins said, would be, I was very underwhelmed, very, very underwhelmed, of, but that underwhelm was a little bit the prejudice of, you know, we had a bit of a preview of what the album was going to consist of, 
And we're Bruce Springsteen fans and we talked about it earlier when we were, I guess, uh, critiquing his live persona. We're used to him toiling over realms for three or four or five years and there is a theme, there is a narrative. And I felt artistically this was a bit, you know, dare, dare I say it to Bruce, but a bit lazy, definitely lazy artistically. And I kind of view it as a collection of songs. However, to your point, Morris, I think brilliantly sequenced because I've gone on a similar journey to Jeff uh, Jenkins. I didn't like it at all. I thought, my God, you know, this, if, if, and, and, I, and I'll get to this point in a second. I don't even think it, this is my thoughts. I don't feel it should be. Um, even spoken about as a Springsteen album in inverted commas, i.e. one that he has sat in a studio with a beginning, middle and end. I And I'm not marking the album hard. I, be, I do believe it's a genuine exploration of uh, uh, Tom Morello uh, affecting his own muse. It's a genuine exploration of him trying to come up with a slightly different sound it's a genuine exploration of uh, a number of songs that were outtakes on, you know, The Rising, Devils and Dust, whatever. I'm not too sure, you know, which one fit, but it's grown. It's definitely grown on me. And where it hit me was about three weeks ago, I played it from start to finish rather than this damn iPod thing that even old people like myself are falling into. You listen to you listen to a song. Yes. And I would go and I went, well, yeah, look, I like that uh, echoey part of the beginning of uh, American Skin, but, geez, I think I like the Live from New York City live version better. Um, Ghost of Tom Joad, yeah, look, it's great, but, geez, I like the starkness of the uh, 1995 album uh, version. And whilst I didn't have a problem, and, again, I was a little bit, uh, I had a bit of trepidation around having American Land and Wrecking Ball on the Wrecking Ball album, mm. but at least they hadn't been previously released on uh, any studio work. Whereas I find there's a certain pointlessness to um, re-recording your own songs, albeit um, one of them has, has, has never previously appeared on a studio album. Um, uh, I find a pointless, pointlessness to that and and this is the hard part to say, and I don't care who the artist is, but if you're going to do a lot of covers, and I get covers, and, and, and there's some great covers there, but if you're going to do covers, I do feel that that normally means uh, some lack of artistic um, inspiration. So I've, I've really warmed to the sequence of the album, and even tonight I gave it a spin just before our show, and I went, this the sequencing of this album, but I would probably go as far to say for me, I would feel better if, if the album was released as hey, this is tracks uh, disc four or tracks two, because to me it's it's I get what you're saying that I think the first two discs of tax, uh, tracks had some um, uh, very different styles, but to me it sort of flows like almost tracks three, disc three, where it was. Uh, a lot of the um, outtakes of the um, late 80s, early 90s. So as a whole, the album's okay, 
But if I'm to rank it in Springsteen albums, I think it's better than Working on a Dream and Human Touch. That's, you know, if I'm to talk about it as an album. Yes. If I'm to talk, if I'm to understand that, hey, I've just been touring for 18 months and I'm pretty tired and I wanted to capture some lightning in the bottle that I had with Tom Morello and I want to squeeze this thing out um, before this tour of South Africa and Australia and New Zealand. I'm not some, I'm, I'm, in that context, I'm not marking it hard, but I don't really view it as a, as I'm waiting. The next album to me is going to be the follow up to Wrecking Ball, even though in the brilliance of the sequencing, you can say that, you know, Wrecking Ball, Wrecking Ball was this depression and this album has a, uh, a hint of, they would come through that and there's a hint of optimism. Um, so I'm very conflicted, but I don't, I don't view it as a Bruce Springsteen album where, I guess it's my own, uh, and it's from 30 years of fandom. I want him to toil and I want him to, you know, as he often does, write 40 songs to pick 10. Whereas I feel this is a little bits and pieces. It's, um, you know, three or four covers, um, and, and, and two, two tunes that, uh, he's written before and a couple of outtakes that I don't think any of the songs on, you know, looking, and it's not fair to look at, uh, high hopes as an individual song, but I don't think any of them are going to become canon in the live show or even become canon uh, into uh, posterity. Over the last few tours, I mean, from what I've been seeing in the in the set lists from, you know, I mean, I didn't go any any of the shows on this tour, but from the even from the set lists from last year when I did go to one show, it seems to me like even you know we're talking here about the songs that are going to go into the canon and you know you might well be right that next time round there won't be a single song of high hopes but uh really i mean like you know going back to the rising which was the big album of the noughties the one that was generating this newfound interest in bruce springsteen i mean what are we are we getting anything more than the rising and you know maybe lonesome day on on a show and there seems to be um very little off working on a dream, and I believe there's been just about nothing from from magic. So, and I don't recall if we had the conversation. I remember I thought you know, we, I think we all thought that magic was, uh, as far as the noughties went, was was a really great album. But you know, it seems like he's. I wouldn't exactly say he's a legacy artist, but well, he is a legacy artist, but he's not relying on his laurels like you know someone like Paul McCartney or or Bob Dylan is. Uh, he is doing new material and, and and performing some of that material live. But there has been the the tendency to say, right, I'm going to stick with the classics. I'm going to stick with Born in the USA. I'm going to stick with Darkness on the Edge of Town and Born to Run. So to sort of say that songs from this album are not going to make their way into uh, the, the the live canon beyond this tour is really no different to anything he's released over the last 20 years. I mean, he's doing the old occasional song, but he it seems like he really is sticking to, uh, by and large, you know, songs from the new album and then songs from uh, Born in the USA and, and you know, a few albums earlier. Well, I think when you've got 18 studio albums now and... 30 songs on average per um, live show, mm. it's difficult to squeeze something from every album on there every time. No, 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 I com- completely understood. But I, I, as I said, the point I was trying to make was that to say that this, due to the fact that uh, there is you know, the opinion that this album is not a great album, uh, that it's not going to get songs into the next 
uh, into the next tour is you know, that that doesn't really link to me because I think you know these are these other albums which by and large a lot of people do like even they're not really contributing much to the current set list. I, I think Morris though with the possible exception of the rising because let's put the rising in perspective um, you'd probably get upwards to three rising songs for in every set for the last um, nearly 15 years it's close to 13 years whereas yes definitely um, magic um, the magic songs certainly appeared during the magic uh, tour um, you know we don't get you know maybe songs like gypsy biker that we'd like um, get very many outings and working on a dream um, they quickly I guess uh, it was a law of diminishing returns as that tour moved on. Um, but I think Wrecking Ball as a tour very much, uh, I guess unlike the Working on a Dream Tour, was pretty, you know, you could get five to six to sometimes seven Wrecking Ball songs. So that's a pretty big uh, representation of an album, um, you know, on a tour. But I guess, as, you know, as Jeff said, uh, Springsteen's an interesting case because he, his set list, you know, most other artists are somewhere between as few as 14 or 15 songs in the 90 minutes that they would choose to play. Mm. When you're um, sometimes into the low 30s and sometimes even mid-30s, there's a lot of latitude that you can, you know, you can even uh, even do a full album show and, and you've only, you know, made a dent in less than a third of the entire set. Mm. But, um, yeah, look, it's, um, I, I'm, it's growing on me. The album's grown on me. The sequencing works, and he's, you know, it's um, how much was his input or the producers? The sequencing, um, I, I can, I can, I can uh, feel a bit of a commentary on the times, I think, and um, but I just feel it's to me, it's not a, there's a, um, uh, it's a, it's not a true artistic statement. And I'm taking it for what it is. It's a bit of an outtakes collection, covers and a few reworkings. All right, so let me, let me ask you this. If you don't consider it a cohesive album, do you think it's a good collection of songs? If this had gone out as tracks two, would you say, Jesus, this is bloody good? Or would if it's gone out as tracks two, I would have viewed it as a collection. But because it's been, I guess it's been um, sold as an album, this is Bruce's next studio album. I find it a little bit dishonest. Um, well, no, no, because he's gone and said in the liner notes, he's gone and said this is a collection of songs. Yeah, I yeah. personally happen to find it works cohesively. Yeah. But, but I'm just asking you now, if you'd heard this album as tracks too, would you say, my God, people would you know kill to write songs that he throws away? Or would you still say, well, you know, even as individual songs... These are still a bit on the nose. Yeah, as individual songs, look, I think some of them I can understand why they were left off in preference to other songs mm -hmm. that yeah, may have been released on those albums. And I guess the thing I always try and um, mark um, an, a, an album by a favourite artist, I go, okay, if this album came out and it was, you know, Damien Gerardo or you know, some artist, that a new artist, how would I mark this album if it wasn't Springsteen? And to me, that's a really interesting litmus test. And as I say, I, will, I like some of the musicality on the album. I like a few of the different production things. I like his voice. I like 
some of the changes, um, you know, in um, the, the in the vocal, uh, how it changes, you know, about one one third of the way through, say down the hole to you know, very vibrant vocal. Um, but I just, yeah, I just feel, yeah, look, I just feel to me, I just feel it's a collection of songs. Right. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of these individual songs. Um, so the the album is bookended by a pair of covers, and the first one um, was by a group called the Havelinas. It's the title track of the album, High Hopes. Hang on, five seconds. Now, I guess this is something that I don't recall if he's done too much of. It has, I guess, that sort of Latin flavour. I went and listened to uh, the original version by the Havelinas online, and I, I guess one thing that you can say about the covers that he's done on this album, by and large, maybe apart from uh, his version of Dream Baby Dream, is that he doesn't really take liberties with his, his covers. And I think I was having this discussion with either I can't remember one of you or both of you during the week that what we genuinely love about a great cover is where the artist does take some liberties and they do add some new personal flavour uh, and what Springsteen has done here is he's just gone and said right I'm just going to take this song and um, reproduce it faithfully because I want the audience to be aware of it you might dig this you might not have heard it so once you've heard what I've done with it and know that it's faithful to the original hey go out and search some more from this artist and you know, a lot of the time I'd find that as a bit of a weak excuse, but for some reason I just, just because E Street Band adds some new flavour, maybe it's not so much because they've done something new with it, but they're doing something a little bit differently to what they normally would do. This is not the E Street Band of, of The River or Born in the USA or, or, or The Rising. This is, this is something completely different over here, and I, I don't know, I just sort of found it... Um, at least maybe uh, an exciting exercise in performance, if not necessarily an interpretation. But it's still, I, I, I find it's really quite a, a wonderful start to the album. And contrast that with uh, the song that we've already gone and uh, spoken a bit about, Dream Baby Dream. Five seconds. I tend to be in agreement with you, John. I prefer, I far prefer the live version uh, where you know it's just him and the pump organ and for some reason I'm not really quite sure why Bruce here feels that he has to pat it out with the band and make it sound more like a cohesive song because the version that you know he played here on the live shows here plus that he'd done on Devils and Dust tour it sounds it sounds really scary just him and that pump organ is something mm. Something, I know haunting is the wrong word because that implies haunting and beautiful. When I say scary, I really mean it's, it's, there's something frightening about it, just him and that, and that, uh, that pump organ. But here he feels he has to pat it out with the E Street Band. And I think that's also something that probably why I've never viewed The Ghost of Tom Joad as being a great an album as, say, Nebraska, because Nebraska was just him and a guitar and his voice. But he felt he had to add synth. He had to sort of produce it up. And I'm not always necessarily sure he's been the best judge for arrangements. And at least in a studio context, he might figure, well, I'm going to do this in the studio because this is eternal. This is the record that I'm 
leaving for someone to go to their shop or download from iTunes or whatever it's going to be. And that's the way it's not, I want it to be soon, but I can take more liberties in concert and just do it by myself. Um, I don't know. So what, what were your thoughts about um, either of those two songs? Do you think that the arrangement works? I mean, I, I, you've already gone and said that um, you prefer the live version, but do you think that the studio version of, say, Dream Baby Dream works here? Um, I, would, I would jump in here and say that for me, this version of High Hopes is nowhere near as good as the the version they released back in, what was it, 96 or something like that, when uh, mm. it, it appeared on a, an EP. It was a, a third song or a four, on a four for some re-release re of a single or something. Yeah, I think I might have missed that EP because I've, I've read about it, but I, I was thinking, I don't even recall that one coming out. But yeah, go on. It was on uh, the Blood Brothers DVD, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, I, I must admit I preferred that, that version of the song. It's, it just it sounds less crowded. Um so was, it, again, was, was there a, was there a horn section? There wouldn't have been a horn section on that. No, there was a there was a lot more uh, there was a lot more harmony vocals on it. Okay. Um, it was it was Mrs. Scalfa and a couple of other other female backing singers. Mm. Um, yeah, no uh, no horns and, and certainly no Tom Morello making squiggly noises over the top of it. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, no, I, I am a I am a friend of uh, Tom Morello's, and I do enjoy enjoy his work. Uh, not so much with Rage Against the Machine yep. or uh, some of his Facebook antics, shall we say? But um, I do uh, I do like some of his guitar work on 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 this album on and on stage. Um, but you know, for me, this song, yeah, it is it is different, and I see what the the Tom Morello thing does, and I see why Bruce maybe wanted to document that, but. For me, at best, it's an okay song. You've done it well before. Leave it alone. Yeah, I felt it was. Um, I guess that. I guess that. What I, what I was trying to say is, um, I, I don't like an artist to repeat themselves. And um, there's a lot of songs out there that um, he's written and, and hasn't written and could have covered. And to um, you know, have a song as the actual title track of the album. And the lead single of one that you actually released on an EP um, a decade and a half ago. Um, yeah, look, it's not a bad version. That, uh, as always with Bruce, it comes, it uh, really um, comes home live. And um, and I guess I, I agree with what you're saying, Morris, uh, with Dream Baby Dream. It would have been incredible if it had been. Um, Say, uh, think the uh, Nebraska version of Atlantic City, mm. with you know just his own vocals laid over, you know, uh, he, you know, uh, multiple times, and that's and that was the beauty of um, what made me re-listen to the album version. And I'm not quite, uh, uh, I guess, left as cold as I was, as I first was with the album version. It could be what you said, Morris. It could be. That moment where the E Street Band chimes in, um, but uh, hearing it live with him solo, I think um, maybe gives us a little glimpse at the lost potential of what that song could have been mm -hmm. in a less busy production engineer's or producer's hands. That um, yeah, it could have, it could have been the starkness of uh, 
Atlantic City, I think, would have worked great. As I, th I think that's what I'd like to see Bruce maybe do, you know, now that he feels right, well, I've gone and done this big... I mean, this album isn't bombastic like uh, I thought Wrecking Ball was, but mm. I really would like to see him maybe next time come out with something that's that's stark again, but, you know, starker than The Ghost of Tom Joad, the album, and, mm. and starker than Devils and Dust, because really, I mean, a lot of uh, Bruce fans who I speak to will come back and say, well, you know, the, the album I keep coming back to is Nebraska, mm. and that's really... He's never done anything quite like that before or after, and that was just you know they were they were all demos. But um, and, and sometimes I find uh, I, I try if I'm trying to show someone a um, yeah if I'm trying to show someone that Springsteen isn't what I guess you know say some of the you know you're either in or you're either out with Bruce sometimes, and and the people that are out is oh yeah he's that muscly guy that wore headbands in the mid eighties. And every every song's about a girl called uh, Maria, a guy called Frankie, a street name, a suburb, uh, or a car. And I'll throw them Nebraska, and they go, "Oh, okay." And particularly, I'll I'll uh, I'm a big Dylan fan. Uh, I'll I'll throw Nebraska at some naysaying Dylan fans. I've had some, you know, real. You know, there's many many Dylan fans that will have a coincidental love of Springsteen, and there's probably just as many will go, no, no, he's that muscly guy that, you know, uh, pumps his fist. And I'll throw them in the brass and I go, oh, okay, wow. Well, ironic I considering that in 1973 he was the latest New Dylan, wasn't he? That's right, that's right. Um, all right, so let's... Go, let's talk a little bit more about some of the other songs. I mean, okay, we've already gone and said that, you know, possibly ironically, considering that these are um, older songs, but probably two of the highlights on the album are 41 Shots uh, and The Ghost of Tom Joad. So I remember when I went last year with you, Jeff, yes. to, to see. Uh, that I think it was Melbourne night number one. Uh, yeah. I was not really quite prepared for what um, Tom Morello was going to do. I think you know I was walking in a bit grumbly, saying, oh, "Bloody Stevie Van Zant is going off and acting in a new TV show. He was, you know, he was shit in The Sopranos, and he's probably going to be shit in this new TV show. Why doesn't he just stick with uh, playing with the E Street Band?" And who, oh, this Tom Morello, I don't care for Rage Against the Machine, but I was just not prepared for what I was going to see him do. And I know that, you know, what you said a few minutes ago about him making all those weird squeaky sounds coming out of his guitar, but my goodness, um, what he did to the ghost of Tom Joad, I just found absolutely thrilling. And I can see the, the argument that says that it is a quiet, reserved song, which is how it was originally recorded. Mm. But these lyrics, especially now in Morello's hands, because well, he, he also sings um, uh, one verse by himself and, and co-sings another verse with Bruce, and he brings up the anger in the lyrics. And, and um, whereas it, it just... I wouldn't say originally it sounded like a song of mild disenchantment, but it sounded originally like a song of uh, being resigned. And these lyrics don't strike me as being the sort of thing where you want it to uh, be saying uh, of resignation. Um, where, where, you know, it gets to the final verse, you know, uh, 
mom, you know, wherever there's a cop beating a guy, wherever a newborn baby cries, wherever there's a fight against uh, the, the blood and hatred in the air, look for me, mum, I'll be there. This is, this is a song uh, of uh, an anger against injustice, and really, I, I think that the arrangement here just so completely works for me. And even last year when I came away sort of, you know, grumbling and quibbling about it wasn't the set list that I wanted, but that was the song that I took away from me, was that reinvention of Tom Joad, and I was quite thrilled to hear it make an appearance here. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think it's a fantastic version of a, of a great song. Um, I can't remember when Morello first started guesting on it. Um, I, I've got a recording of, uh, shall we say, Indeterminate Origin. Um, <laughs> I think it's um, I think it's Houston um, about, oh, I, I forget what year, for, which tour even, where Morello came on stage and guested on that song. Okay. And did did much the same. Um, probably even probably even more bells and whistles and, and squeaky squiggly bits. And um, but yeah, it's a it's a really great song. I mean, for me, the song yeah, it is an angry song the way it's performed now. Um, but I think politically with a small p, what I took from it when I first heard it was was Bruce comparing the current situation in in the U.S., which was back in. 19 whenever whenever Tom Jodd came out, that, um, that it was a case of, you know, resignation and not much has changed since the, you know, since Steinbeck wrote about the um, the Dust Bowl and, 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 right. and the Okies moving on and it was the same old, same old. And if you read the, if you go back and actually read the book, the, the phrase that you, phrases that you quoted um, come directly from Tom George saying to his his mum before he he slips off into the night because he's you know he's committed a crime. Okay. It's um, basically uh, basically whispered, you know, really quietly. Yep. Um, so as not to be overheard by the you know the, the cops and the railroad guys. Um, so so I can't help but think of that whenever I see Tom Morello screaming it down a microphone. But, but, you know, don't get me wrong, that doesn't take away my enjoyment of it. I think it's a, a brilliant interpretation of the song, and I think it, it really takes it to a new level. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it, it definitely does something to to the song that's, that's, that's markedly different from its previous incarnation, almost to the point where it's a new song. <laughs> oh, for, for sure, for sure. I mean, I, I, I know I'm going to struggle to sort of think what it is, but I know I've heard songs in the past, new interpretations, which were really were new songs because they changed the melody completely all over. They haven't kind of done that here, but but yeah, this uh, new interpretation. So he's, he's really, unlike, ironically, like uh, the other, like the cover versions that he's done on the album, here he's done a cover of himself and he's gone and done a completely different reinterpretation. So it would have been interesting. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. He's covered himself, but he's put a different spin. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I always look in an artist, you know, and even, even uh, you know, Bruce, is to not to not repeat themselves and he certainly hasn't here although i guess we we you know through some of those recordings of indeterminate origin we had a bit of a um preview of what this song would sound like in the studio and um i guess it, it, to me the studio version is magnificent but not you know not a million miles away from the live recordings we've heard but uh, very good, and yes, I think you're right. It's gone from uh, the quiet resignation of Tom Joe at his um, you know, mother's bedside as he is in great sort of wrath 
to nearly uh, call to arms. And I, I love the juxtaposition. I love the juxtaposition of um, Bruce with uh, Tom's even uh, rougher and almost spoken vocal. I just think that is a brilliant combination. And I'd like to hear more of Springsteen in the studio. Um, we heard it a bit on the, um, I think it was during the Rising Tour. No, it was during the Seeger Session Tour when we got Springsteen uh, swapping verses on songs like Further On Up The Road with some of those great vo uh, vocalists on the Seeger Sessions Tour. I think Springsteen's voice is so iconic and powerful. It it, it really works well when it's um, juxtaposed with another, with a different vocalist of, of a pretty um, different uh, technique. Now, that's a tour I would have loved to have come to Australia. If he ever decides oh. to do a, a second Seeger Sessions album and he brings that here, then I think I'll have to be uh, digging into the mortgage. Um, okay, so another song on the album. Uh, once again, sort of showing the dark side of things. And I, I understand that this was like a leftover from uh, the Rising Sessions and seems unusual because it, doesn't really seem to me like it fits in uh, thematically. We're talking about, you know, well, once again, uh, thematically linked albums, and I guess maybe that's why I left it off, is uh, Harry's Place. Now, ultimately, it sounds like um, he, he'd written it to fit into uh, into the Sopranos somewhere there. You know, he's telling the story, I think, you know, from the perspective of a guy who's being tied into the share and is going to have the shit kicked out of him because he's gone and done something that you know, the, the local chapter of uh of uh the underworld is not happy with him you know you don't you don't fuck with harry's girls and you don't fuck mm. with harry's car and um i just i found it once again a riveting listen and once again, it doesn't sound like the classic e street sound in fact it probably in some ways it sounds more like it belongs at least musically oh i don't know where you'd put it um, whether it's you know either those mid '90s ones or, or even whether it, I guess it doesn't belong on Tunnel of Love musically. I mean lyrically it certainly doesn't, but but it certainly has a more uh, muted sound. It has none of the big stadium sound of the last few albums. But I just love the storytelling that goes on here, and, and um, it's things like that that make me think you know wow I can still really respect him as a songwriter as well as a performer. I mean, we, we've spoken a lot tonight about you know, the, the energy that he gives uh, and how, how much the E Street Band gives, but it's songs like Harry's Place, to me, uh, shows that he still has great chops at telling a story. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you there, Morris. It is a difficult one to place. I mean, it did come out of the rising era, um, and as you said, it was left off because it didn't quite fit you know, the, the theme that, that Bruce had carefully crafted with the rest of the songs. Um, but if you take the song, if you take it as a as a metaphor, rather than being about Harry's place full of gangsters, if you take it as a metaphor for the uh, George W. Bush era of the United States of America, yep. um, then it fits slap bang right in the middle of the rising. You know, it's, um, I guess, unless unless we actually hear Bruce sit down and explain what he meant by this song, um, you know, we'll, we'll never really know. But, yeah, musically, it's, it, it's it's a hard one to place as well. It has a strange sort of vocal effect that makes it sound like it's away in the distance or something. And um, mm. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's very it's very rare, unless he's doing a ballad, 
that he sings in that sort of like low rumbling sort of voice he's he's not trying to not trying to shout not trying to you know, yell to the treetops uh, he, he's just he's really it, it, it's it's a menace even when because he, he doesn't have the menace when he does the um, uh, the the more ballad type songs or the or, or the songs of resignation that you know you, we hear on Tom Joad or Nebraska you know, about the hardships that ordinary people face but th- th- there's there's you know something quiet here but it is definitely menace and, and I really find that very appealing I think this is another side of it. Yeah, I found this one, uh, uh, the word I can only describe, riveting. I just found it a riveting listen. And to me, this is the best example of, I guess, the High Hopes album. Uh, yeah, a very different Bruce. And I think that's, I guess that's the theme of uh, how I feel. I'm, I'm, I'm wanting Bruce to not play it safe. And, you know, he could probably do Bruce by numbers for the rest of his career. But, um, I just found this one, you know, riveting listen, lyrically and vocally great. And um, I'd love to see this uh, position. I'm not too sure, Jeff, has it, has it made it into the, any of these Australian shows? It'd well, be a, no, it's not, not been played yet. If you imagine it, it, in the right, um, imagine him solo with the spotlight on him, just him alone on the stage uh, singing this one. It'd be, no, that, um, yeah, be, be incredible. Be yeah that will be good and yeah i think just to pick up on what you both said i think riveting and menacing is mm. uh, is that is that and i think also added to it is clarence clemens saxophone there's something disturbing and frightening about the saxophone mm. on that track right which, which is not what you normally get from clarence you normally get some you know kind of quiet wistful kind of poignant dreamy yeah. kind of sex or you get the you know the the honking rock and roll <laughs> That's right. This one has a sharp edge to it, doesn't it? This one's got sort of, yeah, this one's got sort of, you know, and I'm just here to back up my boss here, and if you fuck with him, I'll, you know, I'll meet a deal with two sort of thing. And and, and, and I think, Morris, what you said, I, I, I couldn't but, uh, understand that it was an outtake from The Rising. Mm-hmm. And really, maybe, I think, Jeff, uh, Amer- uh, Harry's place as a metaphor for the United States May, maybe that may be a very good call. Well, shame, shame on me for not having made that connection. But I, I, you know, when Jeff, when you mentioned that, I thought, wow, you know, that yeah, that completely works. And in that context, maybe uh, yeah, it, it would have worked uh, on the rising, at least lyrically, uh, you know, or, or, as a metaphor. But uh, certainly musically, it was out of place with uh, everything else on on that album. But I also like to think that you know, given that he had. That connection, you know, with Stevie uh, acting as uh, Silvio in uh, The Sopranos. I think even if you sort of like took it literally, it sounds like the sort of thing that you'd hear over the soundtrack while uh, James Gandolfini would have been walking slowly through the Bada Bing, um, mm. or just as they're about to um, uh, knock off uh, an FBI informant or something like that. <laughs> but um, it, it could have worked. But I'm sure that um, some Bruce tunes were used in. In the, I think it was a state trooper might have been used over the closing credits of one of the uh, Sopranos shows. And, uh, oh, no, it's an obvious one, but I'm pretty sure Murder Incorporated got an airing, didn't it? I don't recall. I don't recall, but there, that that, that makes sense that it would have been mm. relevant for sure. Never uh, watched the Sopranos. Oh, you should. You should. It's I fantastic. You tend to get there. But, of course, um, I don't know. Uh, just, I, I guess we're sidetracking here a little bit, but... Um, 
Oh, you, you, you've watched it, haven't you, John? Oh, yeah, I love it. It's my favourite TV show of all time, Jeff. So where, where do you stand on the little Stevie as an actor? I tended to sort of see him as a caricature rather than as a real Look, actor. yeah, look, definitely, a, a, I guess, a caricature, but I love Silvio Dante. <laughs> I just, you know, it's, it's kind of like an extension of... it's. Yeah, look, it's probably... As an actor, he's probably Steve, little Stevie Van Zandt mugging on stage. Completely, completely. <laughs> you know, it's probably, he's, he's an extension of himself, um, except, um, you know, he, I don't think he killed people in New Jersey. Well, that was the thing, because a good chunk of the show, you know, he's just supposed to be there as conciliary and he's, mm. he doesn't go bumping anyone off. And then there's a couple of really brutal moments that he has and... Um, thought, wow, I didn't see that coming, but mm-hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, there you go. Um, so, uh, you gentlemen, um, favourite songs, songs that you sort of think, well, you know, for all the fact that you think it's like a, a collection of songs that maybe shouldn't have been put out, but what was it that you think, well, you've, you've, I think we all agree on Harry's Place, but what else on the album that you think, you know, that is a really great song if it had been on tracks too that's something i'd happily listen to over and over or something that you think would work on the best of bruce springsteen really re-release number six well i think tracks for me tracks eight and nine this is your sword and hunter of invisible yeah. game well, you're, that, you're just taking the piss out of me aren't you no invisible game is just an awesome piece of songwriting uh, it's just I don't know why it just it, it just really really gets me and then this is your sword obviously because it sounds like a Scottish song. I'm probably for me this is your sword um, would be you know maybe the weakest original track on the album but I definitely love and I don't even know what it means but you got to love an album. I think we're all hunters of invisible game <laughs> and um, I, I just I love that song. Really, I, for for me, those are the those are the two songs I skip over every time. That I know, I, I see what you're saying, Jeff, about the Scottish feel, but it's like you know, coming back to the Sega Sessions album. That album for me worked because he got the real musicians who that was what they did for a living to make that sort of folk music. He relied on Susie Tyrell to gather that group of musicians because they would do justice to that sort of music. This just sounded like. We're going to do something that sounds like it's Scottish, and it, and, and, and it just words like you know, this is your sword, this is your shield. Just it for me, it in Springsteen's out of Springsteen's mouth or from his pen, it just it doesn't work. It doesn't seem honest to me. Down in the hole, I think is is, is a great song. So which one? Down in the hole, track five. Love that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, I, I reckon that could have worked. And there I go after talking about how cohesive it is. That's a song that I think might have worked quite nicely on um, on Tunnel of Love. Mm. It's got that, uh, and also has, he's, uh, Max is using the uh, I'm on Fire drum pattern. That sort of brought to mind that a little bit. Mm, yeah, it's definitely got a similar kind of kind of backbeat. Um, mm-hmm. For me, it's for me, it's again, it's a, it's a clearly a, a rising song. Um, I think, it, I guess, for it sounds to me like he's, he's singing about somebody digging around in the rubble to try and find survivors. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's you know it's it's quite a 
quite a difficult, quite a difficult subject matter to write a song about, especially with that that backbeat. And I think the I'm not sure if if the the late great Danny Federici is is responsible for the organ on the mm, in the background or not, but it certainly sounds sounds like it. And it certainly yeah, you're right. It sounds like some of the the tunnel of love kind of just echoes echoey noises in the background. Um, I just I just love the way the vocal uh, changes, you know, about um, one third into the song. Yeah, so that that just seemed to me almost like a half-assed decision. There was nothing in the lyric that mm. sort of changed from like we're going to be singing through a megaphone to mm. now I'm going to be singing properly. It just sort of sounded like, oh shit, we forgot to put on <laughs> that, that he sounded like he's singing through. An, oh, quick, 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 throw the switch, throw the switch. Mm. It, it almost mm. seemed like a half-assed decision, but mm. that, but that notwithstanding, it is such a beautiful song that I'm it prepared is. to um, to forgive that. And that that definitely sounds like a a, a post nine eleven uh, exposition on someone mm. missing their loved one who's been lost in the rubble. Um, it, it's yeah, that, I really truly find. Yeah, I agree. Just. An absolutely gorgeous song. But what do you guys feel about um, Frankie fell in love? I love it. It's I acknowledge it's a, a nice little throwaway pop song, but I've I don't necessarily think that throwaway is a bad thing. Um, I, I just and I, I even even in this little throwaway song, I, you know, using lines like Einstein and Shakespeare sitting having a beer. I mean, However, in, any, in anyone else's hands, it might have come out sounding. Uh, you, a little bit forced, a little bit pretentious, but coming out, he just sounds like he's having so much fun with it. It's just a yeah, the um, the, ba- the background of the song was uh, Springsteen uh, had a massive uh, argument and uh, arm wrestle with John Landau because uh, Landau uh, eventually run in, uh, won in the end, but uh, Springsteen originally had the song titled Theodore Fell in Love. <laughs> really? No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was, uh, that was uh, uh, Morris in context of uh, your question earlier. I don't know whether we've uh, put it to the listeners, uh, and I think there's going to be a uh, 180 gram vinyl version of High Hopes sent from your address to the winning entry. If someone can name how many songs that Springsteen has the character Frankie in. Yes, yes, we are doing that uh, competition. 180 gram vinyl. Uh, and uh, of course, John's paying for the postage, but it will go out from my place. And I think Jeff's buying the album. <laughs> oh, I've already got it twice. But yeah, Theodore fell in love. Um, great song, and and that's one. Jeff, did you catch it live? Because I know he's played at this tour. No, I've not 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 no. heard it yet. Um, I okay. mean, I, yeah, I I like it again. It's the informality, the looseness. Mm. Um, Poppy, swingy, but it's it's polished. It's it, it's clever. It's it's mm. sort of like for me, it's sort of son of the Seeger sessions. You know, it's it takes that kind of Definitely. informality, mm. but, but but transplants it into the E Street band. And mm. I do hope they play it live. I think it'd be great to hear that one, especially um if they if they shoved it into a sort of you know slot towards the end of the show when when things are loosening up and it, mm. it's all becoming a bit fun and mm, but yeah, nice. Um, all right. Any final thoughts on the album, gentlemen? Anything that you haven't mentioned yet, or you want to reinforce? I just think. Well, say so for me, I think um, it's an album that's unusually. Um, it's greater than the, the sum of the album is greater than any that in its individual parts. It, it, mm. 
plays quite well and it's growing on me. Um, I'm still probably, you know, at least not now, maybe in a while I'll soften, but I'm still not viewing it as a Springsteen album as such. I think it's a collection. Look, this, the real cynical view could be it may have been a contract filler. It may have been, look, uh, put something out. You're doing this little mini tour, which now is not a mini tour. He's, uh, he's going to the States to do shows now after I think about a month's break after the, uh, or maybe less than a month break after the New Zealand show. So, but look, I'm not, I'm not, you know, super critical. I, I understand uh, he's, he, he likes Tom Morello. He's exploring a new sound. He wants to capture that lightning in a bottle. And I think, you know, it is what it is. It's a collection of um, a handful of covers, a couple of um, reinterpretations of his original uh, music. One, as we said earlier, with the Ghost of Tom Joad, potentially a brilliant reinvention. You know, basically a different song than the 1995 version of uh, Tom Joad. Um, but, um, you yeah, know, the... the Jury was definitely out, and uh, the jury's softening now. So there's no unanimous guilty verdict? No. Good, good. It's like 12 angry men, one by one. <laughs> Jeff, final thoughts? Um, no, I don't agree with John's, John's summing up there. No really interesting high points and low points. Um, some good stuff, some not so good stuff. Um, really going to be some of the songs will be a vehicle for live performance um yeah really looking forward to when well, we didn't mention heaven's wall i just thought i'd throw that one in there actually no that that's that's a song that i like i know that in the car last um uh well no it would have just been on um wrecking ball uh which is i think i might have mentioned i hate um but i think that a couple of the songs that worked the least for me even on, on wrecking ball was uh a, a rocky ground and there was another mm. one that also made use of of a uh, thinly recorded gospel choir and you know what this heaven's wall recalls more for me of something like uh mary don't you weep at least the spirit of mary don't you weep mm. from the sega sessions which uh, is you know, probably one of my favorite songs on that album a highlight on an album of highlights so uh, yeah heaven's wall was yeah, definitely something I really, really appreciated here. Yeah, I, I do like I do like the song, but I really, really dislike the refraining "raise your hand" part. <laughs> it just makes me cringe unbelievably. Even live, it's it's horrible. But when it gets past that bit at the start and actually gets into the song, you know, I see. You know, I see what you you're saying. I see what you're saying, and you know, by rights, that should absolutely shit me too. But for some reason, I don't know. Maybe I'm just, maybe I just wanted to like this so much that I've uh, gone and given him the points and said okay. But um, but yeah, I, I I do like that that song overall. Um, and look, there, there are still some songs that we haven't touched on in any detail, but that's okay. I think uh, the listeners out there can get the general gist that um, the album is uh, not necessarily the definitive Springsteen statement. And, and I'll, I'll be honest, even though it's an album which I think I like more than, uh, the two of you guys, uh, I still wouldn't necessarily place it in the, the same category as, you know, the considered classics. But it is an album that I will keep on putting on. And that for me is, you know, a successful recording, I guess. 
All right, I think that takes us pretty much to the end of uh, another episode of Love That Album. Uh, before we say our farewells, I like to do the podcast roll of honour. I didn't actually get round to doing it on the last episode, so I think I should probably uh, say hello out there to the shows that I like to listen to and have been in one way or another very supportive of uh, Love That Album. So um, these are the shows which uh, I wholeheartedly recommend you give a listen out to. Uh, Terry Frost's Paleo Cinema and the Martian Drive-In Podcast. Uh, Silver and Gold, hosted by Dr. Zom and Piccoloaf. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, hosted by Sammy Ryan, Will Smith. Uh, Will was special guest on the last episode of Love That Album. Thanks very much, Will, for that, and hope to have you back again soon. The Mondo Film Podcast has returned after a long absence. Justin Bozun is uh, back and doing his uh, uh, excellent Mondo Film Podcast. Give that a listen. Uh, Better in the Dark, hosted by Thomas DJ and Derek Ferguson. Talk With That Rhythm, hosted uh, now solely by El Goro. Uh, the Projection Booth, uh, hosted by Rob and Mike, and I sort of got into that show in a big way over our summer. Uh, over the summer break, I just picked out about a dozen episodes, and uh, they're all extremely well put together. Absolutely a wonderful show. Uh, Trick or Treat hosted by the Deadites. Uh, I don't know many bands who sort of get together to do their own podcast, but they're talking about all general sorts of things and you know, music and popular culture and stuff. Uh, the Film Podcast, or it used to be called the List Film Podcast, hosted by Ricardo, Jenny, Adam and Kevin. Uh, the, oh, the Trashy Trio, hosted by my cohort, uh, Wendy Freeman uh, and her partners Josh and Jay. Uh, and they take sleazy films, and uh, they do um, what they do, talking about sleazy films, which in some ways makes Silver and Gold look like a Disney program. Uh, but when she wants to be G-rated, she talks about comics on her other program, Double Page Spread. And I guess a little bit of a self-plug here, Wendy uh, and I have joined forces together with our good friend Tim Merrill to host a new podcast called See Here, that's S-E-E. H-E-A-R, where we're talking about music-related films. Please check that out. We need more than the uh, three or four listeners that we're getting. Uh, but we, um, I hope that you enjoy it and find it entertaining. Uh, the music podcasts out there that I'm uh, always enjoying, Sitting in a Bar in Adelaide, hosted by my good friend Michael Persh, and he'll be on the next Love That Album. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, the List Music Podcast, hosted by Ricardo, Jenny, and Juan, no longer with VK, unfortunately. Feed My Ears uh, used to be just a Facebook page, but now John Ross has turned it into a podcast. I'm not sure if he's at this stage whether he's put them on iTunes yet. I think he's still just being able to download the couple of episodes that he's put together from the Facebook page. But hopefully by the time you hear this, he might have actually gone and put the uh, couple of episodes up on iTunes. And um, that's following a similar format to this, taking a couple of albums. Uh, per show and just talking about it between so John Ross uh, and his good friends Nathan and Jeff and uh, the uh, latest episode they're talking about Murder Ballads by uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds and I've forgotten the other album but uh, they they were yeah they had a lot of interesting stuff to say and uh, I really recommend that you put your weight behind that program uh, we need a lot more music discussion podcasts out there and uh, those guys did a great job. The Soda Jerker on Songwriting podcast. And uh, I mentioned Justin Bozung before. 
with his podcast, the Mondo Film Podcast, he started up a second one called Lucille Got My Mind Messed Up. So um, search all those shows out and uh, give them your support. All have uh, a lot to recommend them. And uh, I think that's all from the podcast Roll of Honor. If I've gone and left someone off, please send me an email and slap me about the back of the head or whatever it is that you wish to do, and I'll mention you on the next program. So, the uh, as for Love That Album, episode 59, that will be out in a month. Uh, Michael Persh will be joining me, and we'll, I guess there's a slight connection to uh, today's episode. We've decided we're going to be talking about the Saints album of 1987, All Fool's Day. That's the album that um, uh, Bruce Springsteen must have taken some inspiration from to cover their song Just Like Firewood. It's the opening song on uh, that excellent album, All Fool's Day. So we'll be talking about that, and we'll be talking about another great Australian album from 1989. Uh, A man who, um, if you live in Australia and you've been a fan of pop music for well, the last 40 years, his his name is well known to you. We're talking about Ross Wilson and his first album in his own name because he'd gone and done Daddy Cool and the Pink Finks and Sons of the Vegetable Mother and, and Mondo Rocket. But this is the first album I think he'd ever put out just in his own name called Dark Side of the Man. So we'll be talking about uh, The Saints and Ross Wilson. Not necessarily a combination. You'd have thought they'd go together, but uh, I think these albums sit quite nicely alongside each other, at least for the purposes of Love That Album. So uh, Michael and I will be talking about that and look forward to his company and your company. Uh, So I guess uh, basically um, it's been wonderful having you two gents on the show. It's been a long time, Jeff, since having having you on and we we made you last. So do you think we can say the name of He Who Shall Not Be Named? Yeah, I don't think we should mention Suzanne Vega. Uh, yeah. I, I, wasn't, I was trying to say I wasn't going to sort of tempt fate by mentioning the horrible, horrible, horrible craze, truth in advertising. Um, and um, I, so we, we can get you on maybe sometime later on this year. Oh, definitely. Definitely. If, uh, provided, uh, provided this one seems to have worked all the way through and you don't manage to chew it up while you're editing it. Oh, shit. I forgot to press the record button. Oh, I don't believe it. Oh, never mind. I'll piece it together one way or another. And, uh, <laughs> uh, so maybe, well, maybe now that we can get you for uh, to join us with the Shooting the Shit crew. I don't know when we'll do another Shooting the Shit episode, but um, sometime, good to me. sometime soon. And Mr. Stirrett, wonderful to uh, have you back on board to uh, to discuss something that's not shooting shit. Really enjoyed it, Morris. And, uh, yeah, it was good. Um, we, we were... Um, this trio was uh, 41 episodes that took us to get back together. Yes, it did. And a move of house, a change of service provider, a purchase of a Logitech headset, and a, and a lot of a lot of uh, corralling by uh, Morris. Uh, the, uh, the trios got back together, and it was great to uh, discuss not only another Springsteen album but uh, a tour at, at the same time. So I, I hope that we get together again before the next uh, Springsteen album and tour because, I mean, now that he seems to have found some sort of level of uh, prolific releases, um, you know, we, it, it is feasible that we could get together to discuss the next Springsteen album of covers in six months from now, but exactly. you know, it'd be nice if we got together before that. Yeah. All right. Thanks all of you out there for uh, listening to the program. Uh, please spread the word. You can 
find the show at lovethatalbum.blogspot.com or just search for Love That Album on iTunes. One more plug I have to give for the See Here podcast. You can search that out on uh, online at See Here. That's s w e h e a r dot podbean dot com, or just search for See Here podcast in iTunes. And um, I think we're scheduled to record again in about uh, two three weeks. We'll be discussing uh, the final Robert Altman film, A Prairie Home Companion. I still haven't watched the film, but I'm looking forward to. Uh, seeing whether it's any good, and uh, discussing with my cohorts, uh, Wendy and Tim. All right, so uh, thanks very much for joining us, and uh, we'll see you again in a few weeks on the next episode of Love That Album. And thanks, uh, thanks again, gents. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.